Mark chapter 12. Um, we have a lot to cover, and when I say Mark chapter 12, I mean all of Mark chapter 12. You know, I made this you know, as I prayed and thought, okay, how are we going to do the Gospel of Mark? And, and one of my goals in the Gospel of Mark was, you know, to show how Mark writes the book and, and how if you just do, you know, each pericope, each little subtitle, you're going to miss a lot because Mark puts things next to each other for a reason. And we get to today, and I think I might have chewed off a little bit more than I was prepared for. So we will move quickly today, and I will uh, highlight to you uh, some of the things in this that are just beautiful um, in this text, in Mark chapter 12. So let me read it to you. It's a long text, but I'm going to read it in its entirety here at the beginning, and then we'll kind of walk through it during our time. Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. It says, he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. But he still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true. Do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And he said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to, said to them, render to, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And the Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up his offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection... When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? (laughs) Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. I love that. Um, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. 
And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them all, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no one other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow. She came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, This poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Well, we only have a few weeks left in the Gospel of Mark, which is kind of sad. We started this all the way back in January, and one of our prayers was that by the time we got to the end of this gospel, that we would see Jesus in a new light, that we would have new eyes when we come to God's word, and we would be excited about it, that we would see how God has put it all together. And and I know for me, he's done that, and I hope that he has done that for you, that there's, I've learned, there's something beautiful and refreshing about walking through a gospel together. And yeah, I'm a little sad that it's ending, I had a quick pop, uh, thought pop into my head last week, like, well, maybe we should just start it all over again, you know? Uh, but no, we're not going to do that. We, the Bible is big. We've got lots of things uh, to talk about. But last week, we saw Jesus walk into the temple, and he picked a fight. Tristan did a great job walking us through that text. He overturned tables. He ran all the animal sacrifices out of the, ta- out of the temple. I mean, what Jesus is doing here. And this whole section, it's unprecedented. I mean, it's almost unbelievable. He has taken a system that has been in existence for hundreds of years, and he has shut it down. At the end of the text last week, Tristan talked about this, the religious leaders come up and they ask him, hey, whose authority are you doing this on? Basically, they're saying, we didn't give you authority to do this, so why are you doing this? We didn't give you permission to shut this down. We didn't give you permission to begin to teach, but Jesus will not be deterred. And today we see Jesus press even deeper 
into this fight with the religious leadership. He's going to make it clear, I am changing everything. And so as we jump into chapter 12, we see a continuation of this conversation between Jesus and the religious leadership that they have asked, hey, what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus answers their question, but now he's going to tell them a story. He's going to tell them a parable. He says in verse one, it says he spoke to them in a parable. He says, a man plants a vineyard, puts a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, built the tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. So there's actually a lot going on in this first verse in Mark chapter 12. But what you need to know right now is that all of this language that Jesus is using comes from Isaiah 5, which is known as the song of the vineyard, where God is portrayed as the planter in Jesus' parable, he's the owner, but where God is portrayed in Isaiah 5 as the planter and the vineyard is the people of God, okay? But Jesus in this parable is going to focus on the tenants, the tenants over the vineyard, the people that has been, have been designated to lead the people of God. And so in verse two, it says, when season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get some of the fruit of the vineyard. So in our context and culture, this would be like if you rented a house, Okay? and your landlord came to collect some of the rent. You are paying the owner of that house a fee to live there. It would have been understood and normal to the people listening to this for this whole scenario. But in verse 3, it says they took him and they beat him. Now, if you're listening to this, that would have been an unbelievable thing to happen. You did not do that, especially in a honor, shame, culture. It just didn't happen. You didn't disrespect the owner and you didn't disrespect yourself like that and your family. I mean, even today, try that with your landlord. They come to collect the rent and you, right? Get out of here. That just wouldn't go over well for you, right? In verse four, this is one of the most important verses in this text. He says, he sent to them another servant, struck him on the head, treating him shamefully. And then he sent another, him they killed. And so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. Remember, Jesus is talking to these religious leaders. And the picture here is that all throughout the Old Testament, God would send prophets to speak the word of God to the people of God. And time and time again, the leadership of Israel would reject that prophet. Every one of them was rejected. God's word was rejected over and over. And Jesus is saying to the leaders of Israel, this is your history you have a history of abusing the prophets and the messengers of God. Jeremiah 26 tells a story of Uriah the prophet, if you're familiar with uh, Uriah. He prophesies and he rebukes the people. He rebukes the leadership. And the people are so mad that they run him out of town and he flees to Egypt. King Joachim sends men to go find him in Egypt and kill him. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, Amos, Hosea, Joel, all spoke against Israel, and they were all rejected in one way or another. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. They put him in prison. They put him in stocks one time. They put him in a cistern, which is like a big well, and they just left him there to die. Jeremiah 7, 24, God says, and it should be on the screen, but they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels, and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them. Day after day, yet they did not listen to me 
or inclined their ear, but stiffened their neck. In Matthew 23, Jesus is giving all of these woes. You remember this section in the Gospel of Matthew? He's giving all these woes, and he says in Matthew 23, 29, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. And he says, fill up then the measure of your fathers. So the Pharisees had built these monuments of the prophets, acting as if they were their heroes. It'd be like, you know, we have monuments of George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr. And he essentially says, you say that if it was you then, you would not have treated the prophets as they did. But he says, fill up then the measure of your fathers. This is his way of saying, you're going to do the same thing. In fact, they've already done it with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who the people saw as a prophet of God, was executed. He came proclaiming, hey, he's coming. The Messiah is coming. Repent and be baptized. And he's executed by Herod. Israel's history was one long story of rejecting the word of God, that God sent servant after servant, and each one was rejected and beaten, and many were killed. So I want to stop here and ask a question. Just individually for you to consider. Do you have a similar history? God's been speaking to you through his word, through his people, and you time and time again have rejected him. He's spoken to you through family members, through maybe your home group, through a pastor, and you continually reject him. Maybe you're ashamed of him. Maybe you're apathetic. Maybe you have a secret sin that you don't think is that big of a deal. But you come here, you go to home group, and the people around you have no idea what you actually worship. And God, through his word, through his people, through life circumstances, he is constantly pursuing you. Not because he's mad at you, but because he loves you. And here's one thing I want to point out, if that's you. One thing that is clear in the Old Testament and in the parable that Jesus tells is that the owner, our God, he's incredibly patient. He's incredibly patient. His servants are rejected. His word is denied over and over. And then look at verse 6. He had still one other, a beloved son. I think this is one of the most significant verses in the Bible. He had one other, a beloved son. There are two other times in Mark's gospel that we see that phrase, beloved son. One is at his baptism, and the other is at his transfiguration, where God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And those tenants look at that son, and they reject him, and they kill him. They say, let the inheritance be ours. We want the power. We don't want to answer to anyone. They want to be their ruler. They don't want to be ruled by anyone. And so Jesus asked the question in verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Jesus says, the owner is removing you from power. And the influence that you have over God's people that's being taken away in the vineyard, the people of God, that's being given to somebody 
else. So then the question is, okay, who's going to get the vineyard? Who's over the vineyard? And so Jesus tells them in verse 10, have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He quotes from Psalm 118. It's a messianic psalm. It's a victory song. It's the same song that they sang at the triumphal entry, and it's the same song that they'll sing at Passover before Jesus goes to the cross. And Jesus is saying, hey, you can reject the stone. You hear my words, and you're rejecting them. You can reject this stone, but this rejected stone will become the central piece of salvation. He's essentially saying here, I am taking possession of the vineyard. I'm taking possession of my people. It's absolutely fascinating and incredibly damning for these Pharisees. I mean, so if you're reading that and you're like, okay, Colton, that's a lot in that parable. Are you sure that, you know, that's what's happening here? Well, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, they sure understood it. They sure got it. They understood what Jesus is saying because in verse 12, it says they're seeking to arrest him for they had perceived that he had told the parable against them. They knew it. They understood what he was saying. Jesus just told them, God's going to judge you and remove you. And I'm going to take your place. I'm taking possession of the vineyard. So they aren't happy with him, seeking to arrest him, but they couldn't do it. Not right there. And so in the next few moments, what you see is all these different religious leaders trying to trap Jesus. Because if they can turn the people against him, then they can arrest him. And so uh, in our next moment, the Pharisees and the Herodians come up to him, two groups that did not get along. They did not agree on much. And so they come up to Jesus and they say, teacher, we know, they just fluff him up, right? We know that you're true. You don't care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances. Hey, truly teach the word of God. I don't think they actually meant that. But they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And that question is specific and it's tricky. And it's tricky on purpose because if he says yes to that question, yes, you should pay taxes, then all the Jewish people, they're going to turn on him. They're going to turn on him. Oh, you want us to kneel to this foreign government? But if he says no, you shouldn't pay taxes. Then the Jewish leadership can go to Rome and say, hey, we have an insurrectionist here. So this is a tricky question. And Jesus has to be careful here. So they probably think they, they have the perfect question. If you want to reword the question, um, it's probably more appropriate to read it as, okay, Jesus, should we overthrow Rome or not? That's the question, really, at, this, at the heart of it. And I love what he does. He looks at them and he says, hey, you got a denarius on you? Let me see it. You, you got a coin on you? And I love that he does that because they are asking, should we submit to this foreign government as a people who truly follow God? And Jesus goes, hey, you got one of their coins on you? I love that. And by doing that, by asking if they have Roman currency on them and to let him see it, they are, he is putting them in a position that is embarrassing. Because by carrying around that foreign currency, they are showing that they already submit to this foreign government. So they're like, hey, should we submit to this foreign government? Oh, do you have any of their money? And they're like, oh yeah, carry it around all the time. Right, no big deal. And before Jesus has even answered the question, he has already made their question backfire. And so it says they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Notice the word that he uses. Whose likeness? Whose image? Hey, whose image is on this coin? Whose likeness? Where does that language come from? Genesis 1. And so he says, he says, you give that to Caesar. 
right? You can give that to Caesar, but you give God the things that are God. And he says, whose likeness? Genesis 1, 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. He says, you can give that to Caesar, but your life, that belongs to God. You were made in his image. His image, his likeness is on you. So your life belongs to God. You give him his money, but you, you belong to the Lord. The Sadducees come up to him. Who, If you don't know anything about the Sadducees, um, they were a wealthy group that saw themselves as the elite. Okay, The Pharisees believed in divine sovereignty. Sadducees believed in free will. They did not believe that God was sovereign over everything. Pharisees believed in angels and demons. Sadducees did not. Uh, the Sadducees denied the resurrection of God's people, and they only believed that the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, was inspired. And so uh, they didn't believe in heaven. So, and reality is they were rich because they believed that their reward was whatever they could gather on earth because there wasn't anything waiting for them in heaven. So they gathered a lot of money and riches. And so they deny a lot of things, and they come to Jesus with this insane scenario where a woman has married seven brothers, one at a time, and each dying, which honestly, by brother number four, you should get CSI on this case, all right, because something's going on here, just saying, like, why are all these brothers dying, okay? But they ask him in verse 23, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? for the seven had her as wife. And the whole point is that the Sadducees want to make the point that believing in the resurrection is dumb. And another alternative here is that um, if they can get Jesus to side with him, then the Jewish people will also turn against him uh, because they were more on team Pharisee. And so um, if, if they can somehow trick Jesus or get him to mess up or get him to agree with him, that's gonna work out in their favor. But really, Jesus responds to their question by exposing their misunderstanding of heaven. <laughs> I love this, there's two things. You know, he, they come up to me and ask a question, and he goes, you've got two problems. One, you don't know the word of God, and two, you don't know the power of God. I mean, just try that argument with someone. You know, they say, hey, what do you think about this? Like, look, brother, you don't know God, and you don't know the word of God, okay? It's just, it's a fun argument to have, and I think only Jesus can get away with it. Um, but the Sadducees assumed they had this big assumption that others thought, the Pharisees and others, that family would be at the center of a resurrected life, okay? That at the end of all things, that there will be a reuniting with family. And while that could be true, but the good news of heaven is not so much about just reuniting with your family. That's not the point of heaven. It could be something that is gained in it, but it's not the point. The point of heaven is that you are reunited and all is restored with Christ, that there is worship and joy. That's why Jesus says we will be like the angels because the angels are worshiping. And that's what we will be doing. And the resurrection, we will be worshiping. And so the focus will not be on each other in the resurrection. The focus will be on the lamb, on God. And he goes on to embarrass them by talking about the tense of a verb in Exodus 3, where God calls himself, I am, okay? So in the Hebrew, in Exodus, in Greek here in Mark, there is no verb tense with I am. It's, it's, really, it's really not I am. It's, it's really I 
what God says here. You know, I think I am, it helps us make sense for us, but really there's no verb tense there. It's just I, I, the Lord. And so he says, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am, I, God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And he says, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. His argument is, okay, you don't understand God's word. You don't understand what God is capable of. The I am, Yahweh, the I, is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. Meaning, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they will be resurrected in the end because the I is not a dead God. He is alive, and that's what he does. He raises from the dead. And Christ is teaching them here, the I, the I am, is not a dead God. He is God, Alpha and Omega. And if he is the I am, then we will also be with him in the end through the resurrection. And while he's talking to the Sadducees, one of the scribes comes up and he says, hey, I've got a question. By the way, uh, did anybody here go to Mary Hart and Baylor? Anybody? All right, a few of you. When I'm reading this, do you just hear the Easter pageant? Because I do. Anyways, most of you are going to get that. Sorry. Um, but scribe comes up, and he asks, he asks a question. He says, what's the greatest commandment? Well, there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament. 613. The scribes, all they did was write Scripture and teach Scripture. And so Jesus, of the 613, which one is the greatest commandment? This was a normal thing that the scribes would argue about. The rabbis would talk about the heavier matters of the law and the lighter matters of the law. There's a a really famous, cool story uh, about a rabbi named Hillel. He lived a generation before Jesus. And the story goes that someone came to Hillel and said, hey, tell me the story of the Torah while I stand on one leg. And the idea was, well, I can't stand on one leg very long. Apparently, I can. Um, I can't stand on one leg very long, and so you have a limited amount of time to tell me the story of the law and the Torah. And Jesus says here, I've got two. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6, and he says, love the Lord with all your heart. And then he quotes from Leviticus 19.18 and says, love your neighbor. Hillel, when he answered the guy who stood on one leg, he said, do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. The rest is commentary. And so both of those answers by themselves that Jesus gives, they were normal answers to the question, but they were usually given separately, but Jesus puts them together. And the scribe hears that and he goes, he's right. He's right. Wow. I mean, it's kind of a fascinating thing. What's surprising here is that for the first time in this whole section, you have a religious leader who hears Jesus' answer and responds with, you know, he's right. He actually evaluated the answer. He considered what Jesus, he, he asked a question to Jesus, Jesus answered, and the scribe went, yeah, <laughs> Jesus is right. And the scribe goes on to say, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, he says, it's much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That right there was a huge thing for a scribe to say. He's essentially saying, you know, loving God and loving people is more important than our religious activity, what we do. So let me put it in our context, because I'm not making burnt offerings and sacrifices, okay? 
Loving God and loving people is more important than being moral. Loving God and loving people is more important than reading your Bible. Loving God and loving people is more important than how much money you give to church. All right, let me switch it. Maybe it'll make more sense. If you strive for morality, that's your goal, but do not love God or love people, you've missed the point. If you know a lot about God, theologically, if you are diligent in studying scripture, you know a lot of stuff about him, but you do not love him or love his people, you've missed his purpose for you. If you give a lot of money, and that's your goal, but you don't love him, love his people, love his people you've missed the point. Now, if you would have asked the scribe, so does that mean that our burnt offerings are meaningless? Him and Jesus would have said no. It's not that they're not important, but to have religious activity without worship misses the entire point of the spiritual activity that you do do. Do you love God? Do you love people? Jesus says those are the two most important things. And Jesus looked at the scribe. I love this part. And he says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. He looks at this guy and he essentially says, you're beginning to have eyes that see. You don't, you don't see. You're missing the most important thing that I am the Messiah, but you are not far from the kingdom of God. And I just want to say here, some of you might be like this guy. You might be like this guy. You, you've, you're interested in his word. Uh, when someone talks to you about Jesus, it's not a rejection spirit. You're, you're genuinely interested. Um, you, you're not in, but you want to be. He, he's beginning to open your eyes. You have not fully surrendered to him, and he has not opened your eyes fully. And so my encouragement to you is to keep pressing into the words of Jesus. Keep asking questions. Go to a home group. Be involved here. Keep asking the questions that you don't know the answers to. Right? Ask Jesus and then evaluate the answer. And so, all right, thus far we have had four tests. The chief priests and the scribes give an authority test. The scribes give a political test. The Sadducees give a theological test. And a scribe gives a legal test. And at the end of all this, it says no one dared to ask him any more questions. So what does Jesus do? Jesus begins to ask his own questions. He begins to ask questions of them. And this is, I think, the central piece of this entire text. It says, as he taught in the temple, he said to the scribes, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And he says, David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I put enemies under your feet. And he says, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? It's a good question, Jesus. Well, what's going on here? The Jewish people had a lot of expectations about the Messiah. The one thing that they all agreed on, without a doubt, was that the Messiah would be a son of David. He would be a descendant of David. And so here's the question that Jesus raises. Will the Christ be merely the son of David? And if he is the son of David, then how is Christ Lord over him? He quotes Psalm 110, one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament, and he tells them, David himself, which David was like their hero, I mean, it was their most treasured king, and he says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, 
which by the way here, that little quote that's from Psalm 110, that's the Old Testament. He says, the Holy Spirit inspired that. This is Jesus affirming that the Old Testament is inspired by the Holy Spirit through human authors. You'll find some people out there who will deny the Old Testament, who will say, hey, we should just focus more on the New Testament and not so much on the Old Testament. The Old Testament is old, it's not reliable, but we can count on the New Testament. This is Jesus affirming that the Old Testament is inspired by God. I I just don't want to pass that by, but he quotes from Psalm 110, and, and he said, okay, why did David say, the Lord said to my Lord? If David was a great king hundreds of years ago, and the Messiah is a king from his lineage, lineage, then traditionally David would be greater than his son, right? So he said, why does this great king David call him my master? Be weird, right? If I had a son, I don't have a son, so it would be weird. But if I had a son, and my son came up to me, and he said, hey, dad, and I said, yes, Lord. Right? Try that with your son this week. They wake up, and they go, hey, Dad, and you say, yes, Lord. Be an awkward thing, right? Because it's weird. The conclusion to the question is that the Son is the Christ, and he is David's Lord. All right, consider the stakes here. Mark 8, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Mark 14, in a couple weeks, Jesus is going to say to the high priest, yes, I am the Christ. And here Jesus is leading us to the conclusion that Jesus is not just the son of David, but the Lord of David, their most treasured hero. And here's what we have to understand. We have to understand Jesus' humanity and his divinity in this text to understand it. Jesus was a man. People saw him. People smelled him, okay? People put his arms around him. As a toddler, he had to learn how to walk. Someone had to teach him how to go potty, okay? He didn't have a halo over him. He was a guy. He was probably really hairy because he was Jewish. All Jewish men had beards. You wouldn't have been able to pick Jesus out of a crowd. In a couple weeks, we'll talk about when Jesus is betrayed by Judas. It's nighttime. It's dark. And so Judas says, hey, the one I kiss, that's our guy. There was nothing physically unique about him. Judas didn't say, hey, you know the guy that's blonde hair, blue eyes, and a foot taller than everybody else? One with a big sparkly robe? No, he didn't say any of that. He said, the one... I kiss. Isaiah said that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. So Jesus wasn't a handsome guy. He's not Brad Pitt. I read an article uh, one time that scientists estimated that the average height of a Jewish male was five foot one. Five foot one. That's short. And you know, you hear all the time, you know, if Jesus walked into your church, what would he think? You know, the first thing that I would probably think if Jesus walked into this church is, man, Jesus is pretty short right? Oh, sorry, Jesus didn't see you there, okay? I mean, Jesus slept at night. He maybe even snored. By the way, snoring's not a sin. Wives, you need to know that about your husbands. Snoring is not a sin. Jesus could have snored. We don't know. But here's the thing. As much as Isaiah says that there was nothing unique physically about him, Time and time again in this gospel, we have seen that when people encounter him, they are amazed. And so Jesus says, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? What's the answer to the question? He doesn't answer it for them. He kind of just leaves it there. He says, think about it, right? But what's the point? The Messiah is not just a son in the lineage of David. David calls him Lord because he's divine. 
David calls him Lord because he is divine. And Jesus is making the point. The son of David, the Messiah, is Lord of all. David submitted to me. I was his master. And you should also submit to me. Jesus walked the earth that he spoke into existence. And then Jesus finishes his teaching with a warning to the crowds about the religious leaders. He says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. He essentially says, hey, beware of the crave for recognition. Beware of the crave for recognition. They were not interested in shepherding God's people. They were interested in being admired. The scribes demanded acknowledgement of their status. They demanded that the people pay attention to their places of authority. They were given the best seats in the synagogues. They demanded the seat of outer. He says they devour widows' houses. They take advantage of the vulnerable. They pray on the weak. He says they say long prayers for their own praise. And the inference there is that they, they will gladly pray in public, but they won't pray by themselves to the Lord. I mean, you got to remember also Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he says in Matthew 6, when you pray, you must, not like, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues at the street corners. He says, so that they can be seen by others. They receive their reward. But he says, when you pray, Go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who is in secret. And Jesus ends by saying this terrifying statement. They will receive the greater condemnation. I mean, look at what he said. They will receive the greater condemnation. And look, I have no idea what that means. I don't know. There's lots of theories and lots of ideas. But I have no idea what that means. But as someone who teaches the word of God week in and week out, That one terrifies me, but it also motivates me. And it should motivate all of us to know God's word, to study it, and to let it stir our affections, to worship him. That we're we're not, these people, these religious leaders, they were playing a game. It was a cultural mindset of what can I get out of it? What kind of power, what kind of influence can I get? How can I stay as the tenant as the ruler. And Jesus is breaking that down, saying, no, you want joy? You want real satisfaction? Submit to me. I am the Lord of David. That we're not playing a religious game. It's so much more than that. There's so much more at stake that we have the word of God given to us by the Lord of our lives. And the only response when you see the master is to approach his word humbly not assuming that you know all the answers or that you've read this text a million different times and so, you know, what can God teach you? But you come humbly, God, show me. Show me who you are, your bread, your water, your, you, you bring life. And the question that I, I have to ask myself, and I think that we all as the church have to ask ourselves is, do I love being seen as a person who does a lot of spiritual things? Do I love being seen as a person who does spiritual things, or do I? And let's not overcomplicate it, right? What did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all of your hearts. And he adds on, by the way, in that whole section, he adds on mind. That's not in Deuteronomy. He adds on mind. Love the Lord with all of your mind. Let's not overcomplicate it. Do you love him? Do you really worship him? Do you pursue him? And is he the joy and hope in your life? And do you love 
Do you love others? Do you lay down your life? Jesus closes out this section by highlighting a widow. He watches a widow put two pennies in, and he calls his disciples over to him, and he says, that widow, she gave more than everybody else. She gave more than everybody else. Now, the disciples could have said here, what do you mean? She basically gave nothing. Jesus says, no, she gave more because she gave all that she had. She could have gave one and kept one. That's tithing 50%, right? She didn't say, okay, God, I'll split it with you. She gave everything, and in doing that, she is saying, you are worth everything, and I trust you with my life. Here's, here's, I know this is a lot of text today, but, but here's why I wanted to, you to see all of this. This little moment with the widow at the end, consider this entire chapter. All the conversations he's had with the religious leaders, everyone who did not want to give up their power and their influence. And what does this little widow do? She gives it all up. She surrenders it all. It's a picture of the humble heart that we are to come before God with. And not the heart that asks a question and just wants a very specific answer that can work out in our favor, but that asks a question and humbly wants to receive from God. This widow, she gives it all. Everyone else in the story wanted to keep their power, keep their influence. She had a fully surrendered heart to God. She loved the Lord, her God, with all of her heart. That's why I wanted you to see all this put together. So the question, I think, as we walk away from here is, will we be a humble people? Not assuming that we know all the answers. Not doing a lot of religious busyness. Like, remember the fig tree last chapter. We've got the appearance of fruitfulness. We've got leaves, but we've got no fruit. That we would come with humble hearts, fully ready to worship our God and nothing else. And that trickles down to each other. And as we find our hope and joy in him, we are free to love one another. Because you don't owe me anything. I don't need anything from you. I've got a well of joy from my God. And now we are free to love each other. Because our satisfaction is in him. Thank <laughs> you.